Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast where I look at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Prashan. I teach literature at McEwen University. And what you're going to be hearing today is a lecture that I recorded for my students for a course on narrative in film. And this week we're looking at chapter three of a textbook called Looking at Movies, an Introduction to Film, in conjunction with Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water as our case study. And I want to make sure that everyone who's listening knows that you can go over to YouTube to my Doc Pershon, that's P-E-R-S-C-H-O-N, Uh, My YouTube channel has the video that I recorded of this as well. But without any further ado, here is the lecture. Welcome to Chapter 3 of Looking at Movies, Types of Movies. And we're going to be using The Shape of Water as our case study this week. The, uh, The focus of this chapter is on broad genre designations of films. But we're just going to be looking at the areas of what we normally think of when we think of genre. So there's a whole section in this chapter on documentaries and experimental or avant-garde film. And we're just, we're not taking much, we're not paying much attention to those, especially in regards to Guillermo del Toro's film. So while the chapter talks about narrative, documentary, and experimental film, our course is largely concerned with fictional narratives and so as such, uh, we'll just be, be looking at those. Because the movies that we've looked at are primarily narrative. Raiders of the Lost Ark's narrative. There's no documentary aspects. Little Women, again, narrative. The Shape of Water, same thing. There is a sense in which we might think that next week's film, Black Klansman, because it's based on a crazy, outrageous, incredible true story, might fall into the category of documentary. But it doesn't because of the heavily fictive elements in the in this film adaptation of the book that tells a ostensibly true story about a police officer who infiltrated the clan a black police officer infiltrated the clan in the 1970s and so often a movie will say it's based on a true story and then people go to see it and they're like i i knew the history and they made all these errors and film isn't film like black clansman isn't trying to be a documentary and, and there is a strong distinction between documentaries and the kind of movies that we're looking at in this course. That said, there are many documentaries that have a, we might say, I don't want to go as far as to say fictive quality, but the, the, the evidence that they bring to bear is, is skewed using the language of film. And so when people say that they've gone to see a Michael... Uh, more film or, you know, talking about this new film about all the bad things that, you know, are, that happen through social media. And there's a lot of what we would call docudrama elements in this, uh, this supposed documentary. I always get a little bit twitchy because people treat that, they, they see documentary and they go, well, that's a fact. But many documentaries skew the evidence strongly in their favor. And when we do that with film language, it has a really immediate and powerful effect. There's a moment in the documentary, Religious, that Bill Maher made. And Maher stacks the deck in this film by trying to prove that people who believe in God or who are religious are idiots. And that also they're the people with their finger on whatever button it is that's going to release something that will kill us all. And he, he, he chooses mostly stupid people 
to talk to who happen to be religious people, but he stacks the deck by never going and talking to anyone of any level of intelligence about faith. And then near the end of the movie, he does this montage where he shows, he, he, he conflates images of people with AK-47s. You see these hands go up into the air, AK-47s. And then the very next cut goes to uh, Muslims in prayer. And by putting those two images together, he's created, he's created an association in our minds, whether we want it to be there or not, is very, very strongly skewed. So when people say that, you know, they got information from a documentary, I always get a little twitchy. He uses a bunch of footage near the end of the film to talk about, you know, who's got their finger on the button. And there's all this footage of nuclear bombs going off. And, and several of those are Russian bombs that were tested while Russia was a communist and ostensibly godless nation. So, you know, we want to be careful about how we, you know, we, we approach documentary in terms of the ideas of, of factuality because film language can skew that so strongly. But as I say, we're, we're focusing primarily on narrative, fictive narratives, because documentaries are narratives. I mean, if you saw any of the, the climbing movies that have come out in the last little while, the one about the Dawn Wall or, or uh, Free Climb, um, the, these movies are gripping in terms of how they've been constructed for narrative purposes. So definitions of narrative. Let's talk about what, what do we mean when we use the word narrative. Narrative is a slippery term. And I started talking last week about how narrative can be understood by narrative theorists and how that is distinct from story in narrative theory. You know, here our textbook tells us a narrative is a story. So while narrative theory differentiates narrative and story as precise terms for a theoretical understanding of how narrative works, here we have just that we know that people use the term narrative to indicate story. And as your textbook says, humans are a storytelling species. It's one of the reasons we love movies um, why we love to, to read books, why we love comics, why we love uh, to hear about someone else's day and why we express that in story. Even people who say that they hate literature are steeped in story. And there is a book called uh, The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. And one of the things he says in there is that even when we sleep, we tell ourselves stories. They're rambling, incoherent stories, dreams, but stories nonetheless. And we've got the idea that uh, from our textbook that, that, that narrative can also indicate a type of movie, that there are documentary films, that there are experimental films, and there are narrative films. Narrative films being the focus of this course, pure fiction, right? Raiders is not a fictionalized events film like we're not looking at the same sort of thing as black Klansmen. we know that indiana jones is not a real person no one ever lived who was exactly like that even if there's somebody that that it's based on in some sort of inspirational way and then we can talk about narrative as a way of structuring stories that what was the narrative of this film and and that was what i was talking about last week with little women because the original story by louisa may alcott is linear and Greta Gerwig's film is non-linear. And so the narrative of Gerwig's film is distinct from the narrative of Louisa May Alcott's novel, even though they both tell the same story. So it's a way of structuring stories. And then finally, we can talk about uh, narrative concept. 
that narrative is this structure that arranges events in films. And your textbook talks about this in terms of cause and effect sequence and that that causality is the basic organizing structure of most movie narratives. However, and I've got, you know, I'm thinking about movies like Hoodwinked, which is a strange one to to employ, I know. But, uh, you know, I could talk about Pulp Fiction, but Hoodwinked is another great example because in every instance that I've been talking about, for those of you who are following along with the podcast, I'm using images of Little Red Riding Hood. So if I go back to the beginning of this and we go like a narrative is a story, there's the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And then a type of movie, well, there's the Red Riding Hood. There's a number of Red Riding Hood films that have been made. And so we might have a particular film that tells the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And when we get to Hoodwinked and we're talking about narrative as a way of structuring stories, we've got that non-linear thing going on again. But even in a non-linear narrative, there's still a sense of cause and effect in terms of trying to understand how things have played out. Even if we as the audience don't get that cause and effect sequence in linear order, it's still there. Movies do not have to arrange events in conventional order to employ narrative organization. We've also looked at the standard narrative structure, which is supposedly defined by Aristotle in his Poetics way back in 335 BCE. This rising action, this triangle, this ascent, this mountain of a structure where we begin with setting the scene and some exposition which leads to a problem which leads to rising action which leads to a climax which leads to falling action which leads to resolution and a denouement last week we saw how a movie like little women will will challenge a structure like this it's very difficult to just sort of easily slot it in here what we ought to take away from that this is that this is one of many possible structures one of many possible narrative concepts or structures that one could use to tell the story that a film is about. And Shape of Water follows this narrative structure pretty closely. We start out with a setting the scene and we meet Eliza Esposito, played by Sally Hawkins. She works as part of the janitorial staff at a research facility, a military research facility. And then we get the problem, which is that Eliza becomes aware that there is this creature who has been imprisoned by the military and is being studied. And uh, then we get the rising action when we find out that the villain Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, is torturing this animal. The the animal bites his fingers off, uh, or the creature, I guess we could say. It's difficult to have a term, really, for the uh, creature in this film. I like to call it the creature because I think this film is very clearly an homage to the creature from the Black Lagoon, the design, the production design of the creature is so clearly a nod to that classic monster movie. But um, IMDb told me that it's um, that he's referred to as the Amphibian Man, and I'm not going to say Amphibian Man over and over again because just even saying it once, I'm like Amphibian Man. It's one of those. It's almost like a tongue twister. And I, I think I'm just going to go with creature. And I also like the the term creature because it reminds me of uh, the movie monsters gareth edwards sort of semi-indie film monsters where the title of the movie was monsters and then you got into the film and the everyone referred to these giant alien squid things that were walking around as creatures and i always thought that was that was fascinating because i think the point of gareth edwards monsters is to argue that the humans in the film are are, are the monsters they're the monstrous ones and i think that del toro's 
the shape of water is is working with a similar argument that it is Michael Shannon's Strickland who is the monster in this movie and that the amphibian man is this creature. So I'll just use the term creature. So then, you know, even though there's there's this uh, this um, this problem of, of, of the creature being tortured. Uh, Eliza has this fascination with the creature, which grows into a relationship. They bond and she decides that she's going to free him. So this is all part of the rising action. And she and her friends pull a heist in the middle of this movie and take the creature away. And then finally she gets to the point where she's going to set the creature free. And then there's this, this battle and she ends up being shot but uh, the creature takes her with him into the water and kisses her beneath the waves in this beautifully lit, beautifully shot scene. And we get the climax of the film, the falling action in Denouement there, a resolution. So this film fall, falls into this, this particular structure pretty clearly. It's easy to slot this one in, but not every film fits quite so perfectly. And we want to be careful about trying to make every movie fit into that model. It's the same thing with Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Too often people try to cram anything that feels like it ought to be about heroism into Campbell's scheme and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't even work with ancient epics. So why would it work with modern film? And this should tell us right away that, you know, one film to the next, we can't treat them like like all movies can be perfectly compared and contrasted as though there aren't these vast differences between them. That was part of my pedagogical learning intention with the, you know, putting Raiders of the Lost Ark as our first film and Little Women as the second. And you can say, like, I feel like there's greater verisimilitude in Little Women, but there isn't a lack of verisimilitude in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just that the verisimilitude, the consistent diegetic world of Raiders of the Lost Ark is far more hyperbolic. It's more exaggerated. It's an adventure story. And so, of course, things are going to happen in that world that don't happen in Little Women. Like, Indiana Jones survives all sorts of near-death experiences in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Beth can't get over the sickness that she has. It's a difference in genre. These are different genres. They are telling different sorts of stories. And this is more than just a difference of narrative. It's a difference of narrative type or genre. So a genre is, in terms of film, a categorization of narrative films by the stories they tell and the ways they tell them. And we know about genre because we turn on Netflix or whatever streaming service is your jam and we are given our films in categories. Now, I, I regularly will say, wow, Netflix is drunk again because Netflix tries to jam anything that comes even remotely close to a genre into that genre classification. Uh, I was once on an airplane and, you know, they have the movie service on very long flights and there was the science fiction category. So there was a distinct science fiction category. It was not science fiction and fantasy, distinctly science fiction. And I went in there and there was Harry Potter. And I said to my wife, this plane's genre categorization is drunk again. Uh, people often confuse science fiction and fantasy as though they are exactly the same thing when they are, there are very strong distinctions. Although you get films like Star Wars that do a hybrid. And we talk about hybrid genres uh, later today. 
But genres, uh, how, why do we have genres? Why do we talk about them? Some people are like, I don't, I don't go in for categorization. You know, when I was um, living uh, as a believing Christian and I was a minister, there were people who, you know, you'd say like, okay, well, what kind of a Christian are you? Like if you, you found the affinity of we are both in the same religious camp, then the person would, you know, you'd say, well, what kind of Christian are you? Because, I mean, there's the three broad categories of Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic, and then that breaks down within Protestantism into a bunch of different ex expressions of faith, made many, many different denominations. Uh, I grew up Baptist, but I knew lots of people who were Pentecostal within the within the Protestant umbrella. And then you'd have these people who go, well, I don't go in for that sort of thing. I'm just a Christian. And I would always go, no, you're probably not. You probably have some distinctives that, you know, you wouldn't set foot in an Episcopalian church, uh, or you wouldn't go anywhere near a United Church uh, you would not identify with those people for any number of reasons. And so when people are like, oh, I, I don't go in for genres, I'm like, you probably do. You probably have these classifications in your head, but you're trying to be, I don't know, trendy, whatever. Because genre is a very useful thing. It allows us to predict what sort of movie to expect. You know, I, I think about uh, Johnny Depp in Sweeney Todd and the trailers for Sweeney Todd never showed that it was a musical. And I know that there were many people, I've, I've, heard, I've heard anecdote after anecdote of people saying, yeah, we took our friends to see this. And then when it was a musical, you know, the husband looked over and was like, what did you bring me to? And so there's this expectation that's been thwarted because if you've seen other movies with Johnny Depp that were made by Tim Burton, then you're thinking Sleepy Hollow. And and then the trailers for Sweeney Todd sure made it feel like, well, this is going to be just like Sleepy Hollow. And in its own way it was, it's just that people sang. So we can predict what sort of movie to expect based upon the genre that it tells us it is. You, and you don't try to sell your movie as anything other than what it is. Because you could probably sell a movie like Hereditary as though it were this gutting family drama. And people would buy it for the first hour. And then the movie would go whoop! And there'd be this flip and, you know, it was like, oh my god, I'm in a horror movie. Uh, so you let them know this is a horror movie because you don't want to get that kind of bad press. There's a movie called Bone Tomahawk and it is a horror film, but it's also a Western. And that's the trouble with these hybrid movies is how do you sell these? So if you watched a trailer for the movie, you might go, oh, this is a, this is a Western with Kurt Russell. I love Kurt Russell. I like Westerns. Let's watch this. And then you get to the end of this film and it just has some of the most brutal violence I've seen it, you, you would not be a happy camper. You'd be like, I don't, what, this is not what I signed up for. So genre allows us to predict what sort of movie to expect. Of course, then you get a movie like The Shape of Water. And what is that? How do you predict what sort of movie you're going to expect? What do you tell people the genre of The Shape of Water is? It helps audiences to obviously select movies as a result of this. And it also allows reviewers to critique and compare a film to others within its genre. And that's the fairest way, I think, to critique a movie. Because if, you know, speaking of Guillermo del Toro, I remember when I went to see, Pan, uh, not Pan's Labyrinth, sorry. Um, I went to see Pacific Rim. See, they both begin with the first pa. And I did my master's on Pan's Labyrinth. So if I say Guillermo del Toro and then my mouth goes pa, I'm going to just say Pan's Labyrinth by accident. But I went to see Pacific Rim and I loved it because what I saw was a, a giant monster movie with giant robots. The genre is like the kaiju film 
of Godzilla, Japanese movies where you have like a, a robot fighting somebody like Godzilla, a Godzilla uh, robot fighting Godzilla. And so I just went with the expectation of a kaiju film. And if you've seen a lot of kaiju films, you will know that Pacific Rim is a significant cut above what you would get from other kaiju movies. But people weren't reviewing it that way. They were reviewing it as a Guillermo del Toro film. Not within its genre, but within its director's oeuvre. The director's work. What other movies has has Guillermo del Toro made? As though they'd forgotten that he was the guy responsible for the movie Mimic and Blade 3, which weren't high art. But then he did Pan's Labyrinth, and it won a bunch of awards, critically celebrated. And so now there's this expectation that Guillermo del Toro is always going to produce something of that caliber. But when you're making a ramped-up version of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which is really ultimately what Pacific Rim is, why would you compare that to Pan's Labyrinth? It's not the same genre. We're not, we're not within a mile of the same kind of story that's being told. Now, if we look at Shape of Water, I think that's much closer to Pan's Labyrinth. And if somebody went and saw Pacific Rim and was like, I love Guillermo del Toro, and then they showed up for the Shape of Water, they might be like, where's the giant robots? So I think it's, I think it's important to have genre at some level to tell us what to expect. There's all sorts of you know perils, fraught with peril. Because there are genre conventions, we come in with those expectations. And we've talked about expectations in earlier classes. And genre certainly sets up expectations. And here I've got this infographic from show, showtimeshowdown.com for rom-coms. And we've got a, a, a chart, a pie chart here that says that these are things that show up in romantic comedies. These are part of the story formulas, the themes, the character types uh, of a rom-com. So we've got two people who don't belong together, uh, 10% of rom-coms. I don't know what they, did they actually study this or did they just pull this out of the air? I don't know, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it's an idea that feels relevant or correct to, to the idea of genre. And I got to just digress for just a moment to say, um, that we should not, this is one of the reasons that I stress a concept called the map is not the territory, which means reality is not the representation. There's a famous picture of a pipe that says this is not a pipe in French because it's not a pipe, it's a picture of a pipe. And rom-coms, romantic films in general, often have people who don't belong together. And this is why I, this is one of the reasons I stress let's not try to prove fact with fiction. And please don't get your ideas for good dating habits from romantic films because movies are filled with crises to make it interesting. We don't want to live with that kind of crisis. It's like J.R.R. Tolkien once said about fantasy, I desired dragons, but I did not desire them on my street. And we desire drama in our rom-coms, but we don't desire drama in real life. So people stop trying to date people that you don't belong with. Like, stop doing that. You know, if, if someone's not returning your affection, why are you wasting all your energy on them? Stop, stop doing a John Hughes. Okay, this, these are movies and, and they have scripts and these people follow those scripts. You go and find someone who loves you the way you are. That's who you want to be with. Uh, flamboyant best friends. Maybe that's the person you should be with is the flamboyant best friend. I don't know, but 5% apparently of rom-coms have flamboyant best friends. Falling in love montages, and they love the montages. Look at that, they say there's 40% of this, but you know that's a pretty consistent feature of a typical rom-com, especially if you watch ones that aren't 
highly rated. Like if you're watching, you know, one that got two and a half or three stars, you're probably going to see a lot more of these conventions, unabashed conventions, a shameful reveal of a truth that then makes us wonder whether or not they're going to really stay together. 10% the chase, right? You got to, we, we talked about this last week with little women that it's funny to me that Greta Gerwig includes the chase in little women. Um, in a carriage, but a chase nonetheless. Uh, and then music at least 20 years old. Why? Because it's all about the nostalgia. Oh, I was wrong about the flamboyant best friends. That was 20%. And apparently music that's at least 20 years old is only 5%. I think that percentage is higher. Again, this is just, this is just to stimulate thought about these things. Now, the, the textbook says that not only are these things, story formula, themes, character types, setting, and the presentation of a film part of genre conventions, but movie stars are also part of that. And there are certain actors who show up in that kind of movie over and over and over again. And there's an image here of Matthew McConaughey because he got typecast as a leading man in a lot of romantic films. And you might be asking like, why are you talking about rom-coms if we're going to be talking about The Shape of Water today? Because as we're going to see, The Shape of Water is a romance. And that's not normally what we would associate with Guillermo del Toro, but that is ultimately what it is. Text talks about transcending genre conventions, and we've already seen this with Raiders of the Lost Ark. You might not feel like it was, like some of my students watch the movie and they're like, eh, it didn't really work for me, it's kind of old, it's kind of dated. Um, sure, but go and watch one of the original serials that it's an homage to. Go and watch one of the earlier adventure movies that it's an homage to. Then watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and tell me it's not transcending the genre conventions, right? Of a movie like Danger Island. And The Shape of Water is transcending genre conventions, certainly with regards to the movie that I mentioned earlier that I think it is an homage to. Uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a pretty standard, you know, creature under the water, steals the girl, damsel in distress. And Del Toro takes the, some of the conventions of that genre. You've got a monster that you found out in the Amazon, and now you're testing him in a secret government lab. That feels very 1950s, 60s, Cold War tensions, Cold War paranoia. But then he does something that's particularly modern, with those conventions. And so in as much as uh, this is an homage to Creature from the Black Lagoon, we can see in the, the poster for Creature from the Black Lagoon that the creature is holding the girl. And that's the same thing with the poster for The Shape of, of Water. I love that, that, that the poster for The Shape of Water pretty much tells us how the movie ends. People are always like, oh, spoiler! Oh, spoiler! Really? Was the journey of The Shape of Water ultimately spoiled? by that image that more or less told you how this movie was going to end. I think we need as a, as a culture to get away from this fear of spoilers. You tell me what's going to surprise me in a movie and yeah, that's kind of a disappointment. But if that thing, if that movie won't work with me knowing what happens, it's probably not a very good movie to begin with. There are so many other things to appreciate in film. Uh, I'd love it if we got away from just whatever shock or surprise or new dramatic reveal you know they've brought out of the marvel universe is is there that that we're all like don't tell me what happened and i'm like eh, after a while you should be able to anticipate what's going to happen based on genre conventions but also 
why aren't you paying attention to the million other things that the movie is doing instead of just waiting for the next big surprise? Uh, on the subject of genres, continuing here with this, uh, the textbook talks about six major American genres, and it's one of the areas that I'm not thrilled with the textbook about. There's so many things I love about this textbook. This isn't one of them. Uh, six Amer major American genres. Gangster, film noir, and I bolded science fiction here, and I have a reason for it. Horror, western, and musical. Now, I taught the novels of the Sisters Brothers a few years back, and I was talking about the concept of revisionist westerns, westerns that change the conventions of the genre of the western. And one of my students tentatively raised her hand and asked sheepishly, what's a western? She didn't know. She had no idea what a western was. And it's interesting to me, I understand why your textbook does this at some level, because the, the textbook is, is assuming there's going to be some level of film history being explored in our course. And I would love to do that, but there's only so much you can do in a semester. And if I try to jam in film history on top of learning how to read film formally, we're going to lose out on one of those in the bargain. If we were looking at film historically, then we would absolutely be looking at Westerns. And so many of the examples that your textbook talks about in this chapter are Western examples. But Westerns have sort of gone the way of the dodo. And this is interesting to me because I wonder to myself, why aren't, why aren't Westerns popular anymore? Like your textbook says, genre gives narrative voice to something essential to our culture. Okay, well, if, if genre gives narrative voice to something essential about our culture, why aren't Westerns popular anymore? Why were they popular in the 40s, 50s, and 60s? Why was there a revisionist move in the 60s? Why did we see the Western uh, wane in the 70s and 80s? And why do we hardly ever see Westerns anymore? Meanwhile, superhero films are hugely popular... It's almost an inversion of these things. I mean, when Westerns were on the wane, superhero movies were just beginning to, to emerge. We got, the, you know, the first Superman movie, and then a decade later we saw Batman, and there were a few attempts at superhero films in the meantime. Now superhero films are one of the most popular genres in the theater. And it's interesting to me, too, that sometimes they get lumped in as some sort of subgenre. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of think that they might be their own thing at this point. There are conventions of a superhero film which are distinct from science fiction or fantasy. But the other reason that I wanted to look at this particular slide um, where we see this breakdown of mystery, thriller, science fiction, romance, and fantasy is because those genres are the most popular ones. Romance is the most popular fiction narrative in, in print. Okay, so in, in published works of print, textual, read, books, romance reigns supreme. And that's followed closely by thrillers and mysteries. And then depending on what list you look at, you're going to get science fiction and fantasy, potentially science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So it's interesting to me that your textbooks like gangster, film noir, horror, you know, Western, musical, and science fiction is one out of the most popular, and that they didn't include romance in here seems particularly telling to me. I think, I think so often we're ready to just throw romance out the door. It's not important. It's frivolous. It's fluff. It's the most popular form of narrative fiction in print. People love to fall in love in fiction, so why aren't we paying closer attention to that? So we have all these different forms of you know, all these different forms of stories through genre. 
And uh, here's a here's a list from Bonos Data, at Bonos Data, film genre popularity 1910 to 2018. And here we can see if you you know at the bottom of the chart, westerns hugely popular back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, starting to see a downturn in the 60s. The revisionist western brings it back in the 60s, so that in the 70s it has a sort of second life, but planes off pretty much entirely. Science fiction quite low at the same time that westerns were high. And then up, up, up it goes, the popularity. Um, and we don't have the superhero film here, but it's fascinating to me that they got fantasy on here and that they've got so many uh, fantasy films because I think what they're talking about there is just films that have an element of the fantastic. But nevertheless, let's take a few of these genres and talk about the shape of water. This film is a hybrid film. And that is why I chose it. I wanted a movie that was more than one genre so that we wouldn't just talk about a single genre for this for this week. It is a romance, first and foremost. We've got boy meets girl, girl meets boy, in the form of Eliza meeting the creature. And initially, the, the shot where she first sees him, there's this low camera angle, which makes him seem really large and powerful. There's a sense of awe about that moment and the way that it is framed. And then there's the montages that were talked about earlier. There's the montage of getting to know ya. She brings in a portable record player and plays him music. And she, they, they eat together. They, they go on lunch dates where she brings him eggs and, uh, and he eats them, right? And then uh, finally they get it on. They have sex in what is probably, you know, for many people was, was terribly surprising. I remember one of my colleagues coming and saying, have you seen The Shape of Water? And I said, no, I haven't yet. And she says, it's an interesting film. And what she was referring to is that she just was not ready for the fact that this was going to involve sex scenes. But sex scenes are often film's way of saying they're really in love. You know, I remember when I was younger, we were, you know, people would, would talk about sex scenes in movies and be like, I just don't know why they need to have a sex scene. Like, why do they have to have sex right away? Do people always have sex right away? And I'm like, even if they do, even if they don't, doesn't really matter because in film, it's about what it communicates to us and film is a visual medium. And so whether it's the camera panning away as the couple throws themselves on the bed and it's not an explicit scene and then they show us the curtains blowing in the wind or something like that, or it's a really explicit scene in a bathroom filled with water. Either way, the movie is saying they're really, really in love and it's doing it in a visual way. Film is also science fiction. and We get that in that military testing facility. We get it through Michael Shannon's character of Strickland and we get a little bit of that Cold War paranoia, Cold War espionage in the character of Dr. Robert Hofstetler, or Bob, as Strickland refers to him. Uh, Hofstetler is a double agent working for the Russians, but he believes in the beauty and the sanctity of this creature and that this creature is ultimately human in some way that is distinct from uh, the idea of Shannon's idea of, of racial superiority. Michael Shannon does such a good job in this movie playing Strickland with all of his uh, mad, ethnocentric, misogynist views of the world. And so, you know, it's, it's Hofstetler who helps 
Eliza when she finally decides she's going to free the alien creature. And I think that's how we can really follow this is like in an alien invasion movie, something like even E.T., Steven Spielberg's E.T., you know, that the kids have to try to get the alien away from the bad people. And finally, in the end, they are able to free him. And uh, with the help of uh, Eliza's friend, played by Richard Jenkins, wonderfully played by Richard Jen Jenkins, Giles, um, helps, uh, helps her to get the creature to escape. And finally, it's got elements of fantasy, too. And I'm not just talking about the way in which this movie defies logic at certain points, like when she just shoves the towel under the door and then she fills the room like it's airtight, like it's, a, like it's a, an aquarium with water. I think many people would watch that sequence and go, you can't do that. You can't do that. No, you probably can't. But, so maybe it's fantasy at that point. But I'm speaking actually more about this movie's references, homage-style references to fairy tales. Del Toro loves fairy tales. When he made Pan's Labyrinth, it was his love letter to fairy tales. And here again, he's playing with the conventions of fairy tales because what is Eliza if not the little ash girl of Cinderella? Scrubbing floors, doing you know what other people set her uh, to work doing. And then she meets, I don't want to say a prince. In fact, she doesn't meet the prince. She meets the beast. But unlike the fairy tale element of beauty in the beast, this creature may look beastly, but does not act it. It's Michael Shannon as Strickland, who is the beast, who is the monster, monstrous inside. And increasingly, as his fingers that have been reattached rot from his hand, his monstrosity is exteriorized. This is something that Del Toro did in Pan's Labyrinth as well with the villain is that he went from this perfectly put together icon of masculinity in that period and then he whittles that away through violence and then the the that the villain gets wounded in ways that are really really visual like in Pan's Labyrinth uh the 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 villain gets his his cheek sliced wide open and then he sews it up, but then he's got this band-aid that's, you know, blood is soaking through. And so we're, there's this way in which he's, his, his interior monstrosity is exteriorized. And with Michael Shannon, it's that those rank bandages, like when he squeezes his finger and the pus comes out, we're like, oh yeah, okay, that's so gross. And so he's gross and increasingly the creature is beautiful. The, the creature's design is not meant to be monstrous. And then finally, we get Love's True Kiss, if we want to say it that way. She goes to the Snow White position. Although she's not been there for the entire film, she has a great amount of agency. This movie is incredibly woke. This movie is very, very culturally aware in a progressive way. And, uh, but at the moment of this kiss, she's, she's dying or she's dead. And his kiss brings her back to life. She's Sleeping Beauty. She's Snow White under glass. And then she comes she comes back he you know and there's apparently some debate over whether or not the kiss at the end of the film is him giving her gills magically because he can you know like he he gives giles his hair and he and he heals giles's wound at one point giles is bald and he's very very aware of it and and he's very ashamed of it and he wears a toupee as a way of of dealing with that and then uh, there's a moment when the creature puts his hand on Giles's head and Giles wakes up with hair growth so people say well I think that when the creature kisses her at this point because his hands are over the scars that she has along her neck that he's he's giving her gills and then there's other people who are like no no because her background you know she's found by the water and she's got these scars so maybe she had gills and then they sewed them up and she just got used to living 
in this world the way that she does, but maybe that's why she loves being in the bathtub so much, aside from the fact that it's, you know, the place that she goes to masturbate. Del Toro loves ambiguity and he loves not explaining everything to his audience. He doesn't ever want us to walk away with a completely clear vision of everything that happened in the movie. He likes to haunt us a little bit with uncertainty. And I think he does that here as well. It doesn't really matter either way because they're together in the way that so many fairy tales, at least the, you know, cleaned up, sanitized ones that we are more familiar with via Disney play with. And so they get together, right? And that's a convention of romance again. So we're, we're hiking back up towards romance in that moment. But what we're talking about here is the evolution and transformation of a genre, the process by which a particular genre is adapted to meet the expectations of a changing society. And I think The Shape of Water is a great example of this. And a hybrid may commit, combine any combination of genres. And then subgenres emerge from this hybridization when areas of narrative or stylistic specialization arise within a single genre. So superhero films are, are I think, a hybrid and subgenre that is increasingly its own genre that emerged from science fiction and fantasy uh, to, to tell these, these tales of, of you know, these powerful beings. iTunes calls The Shape of Water a drama. And I'm like, wow, that really falls short. Because it, it, what if you just saw The Shape of Water and they did some other poster for it? I don't know. What if you didn't see the fish creature? What if you, you weren't really aware it was a fish creature and you, you rent this and it's like drama? And for the first little while, you'd be like, this is a beautiful movie. This is a beautiful sort of art house feeling movie. And then you get the fish creature. You get the, you get the amphibian man. And you're like, what? Uh, and some people would just be super irate if they walk in thinking they're getting a drama and they get science fiction or fantasy, they are going to be angry. Wikipedia calls it a romantic fantasy drama. Okay, that's better, I think, but we're still missing those science fictional elements. Amazon Prime put it under drama, adventure, fantasy, romance, and suspense. And I, initially I was like, suspense? But then there's a heist two heists of a sort. There's getting the creature out in the first place, and then there's getting the creature to water. And in both cases, there is a tension to those scenes. So it is certainly suspenseful at those points, but it's got so much going on. And again, I want to come back to this idea of the process by which a particular genre is adapted to meet the expectations of a changing society. That not only is that about genre conventions, but it may also be about cultural concepts, cultural analysis. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Again, we want to talk a little bit about narrative form, the formal arrangement of events that make up the story in a film, and how our expectations try to anticipate how that's going to come out. Our expectations provoke us to act predictive questions about the film's outcome. So once we see that Eliza has some form of emotional connection to the creature, we anticipate that she's probably going to try to free him. But I know that many viewers were not anticipating that she was A, going to fall in love with him, and B, even if she did fall in love with him, that C, she wouldn't end up having sex with him in her bathroom. So that was, you know, that was not something that, that was in the expectations. That was not something they were necessarily prepared for. But if you're paying attention, the movie is certainly leading us up to that moment. And I think it's, it, I think it's done beautifully. I don't think this is a crass film. I don't think that it's done in a cheap or tawdry way. I love how the creatures, I guess maybe erogenous zones, light up. Um, because isn't that what happens really when, you know, we as humans are aroused, we light up. I love that there's a visualization of that in this film. I think that's absolutely gorgeous. 
Form and expectations, instinctively searching for patterns in all art forms and patterns providing an element of structure. The movie does this in many different ways. One of the ways in which it achieves its sense of expectation in us as the viewer and generates that suspense that I was talking about earlier is by showing Eliza going down to the docks to see where the water line is so that she knows when they're going to be able to set the creature free, when the creature will be able to get up over the the seawall and swim out to freedom and so every time that she returns there the movie gives us the same perspective of the shot and that's important that's that's a cinematography move if the camera was constantly being set in some different position we wouldn't necessarily make the association with that earlier instance but because the camera is relatively in the same position every time eliza goes down to the docks we can see the water rising as well. And we know that there's this countdown to her being able to get away. And we're going to talk a little bit more about countdowns and clocks in just a little bit. Michael Shannon, again, the, the exteriorization of his monstrosity is another pattern that emerges in, Gel, in Del Toro's work from film to film. But in this movie with the beginning where we, we see him at the beginning and he's very well put together, he's dressed in his suits, hair slicked back. This man is immaculate in terms of what masculinity looked like. This is mad men masculinity, right? 1950s masculinity and tough guy, head of the household, takes no crap, buys his car, and his car is, is, is awesome. Uh, but, you know, very early in the film, he gets those fingers bit off, and they become, I guess, a way of exteriorizing not only his monstrosity, but his vulnerability, that he is ultimately, he is a vulnerable and weak person as well, that he has, you know, things that make him uh, weak. The other pattern that I see emerging throughout the film is the use of color. We have green, green, green. And coming back to Michael Shannon as Strickland, uh, Strickland, when he goes to buy the car, says that he doesn't like green. And the guy says, well, it's teal. Why doesn't he like green? I read one review of the film that said that, uh, they, that they felt that the rejection of green there was Strickland's hatred for the creature because the creature is sort of greenish, right? Um, I don't know how much stock I'd want to put in that, but the creature's coloration is certainly the same coloration as much of the film's production design. And we pick up on those sorts of things as the use of green and blues, the, those, those cool colors that we talked about from Little Women, except that in this film, the cool colors are the space of the good guys, we might say, the creature, Eliza's relationship blossoming in that color palette, whereas Strickland's Dayglow, Pleasantville, 1950s suburbia America is the yellow and the reds and the pinks and the warmer colors that were the nostalgic space for Little Women. So we've got that same use of color palette this week, but the way in which those colors are being used has been somewhat reversed and exaggerated. And, and there's just that, there's a repetition of that over and over again. Uh, danger, Will Robinson. Danger is the, is the color of yellow. yellow the, that, that yellow warm tone is the color of danger. And the cool colors, the color of water, is the, is the space of safety in this film. Speaking of mise-en-scene, speaking of production design, I want to talk a little bit about the dance sequence, this wonderful, beautiful dance sequence, which is an homage to uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers' dance routine in a movie called Follow the Fleet. 
and we get this wonderful dream sequence that allows for this montage. And it's a moment of realism and anti-realism again. And I know that I spoke about these things before, but one of the ways in which I teach my courses is to not only teach a concept once, but to come back around to it again in another context with another case study. So realism, the tendency to view or represent things as they really are. Realistic films attempt to immerse us in a world that is convincingly depicted on its own terms. And even though we have a amphibian man, he's rendered realistically within the diegesis of the film. There is this sense of verisimilitude that tells us that this is realism as far as this film is concerned. And then anti-realism, an interest in or concern for the abstract, speculative, or fantastic. And your textbook says that movies can be both realistic and anti-realistic, especially in science fiction, action, and thrillers. And we certainly see that here, that we've got this sense of anti-realism, right? That the creature itself is that, but there is this sense of verisimilitude about it. And then we get this moment in the film where we're not even talking about the kind of anti-realism that we would talk about in a science fiction film, but rather that this becomes this abstract moment where, as Del Toro said, how do you give voice to the voiceless? Because Eliza is mute. She cannot speak. And she, there's this wonderful moment where she's sitting across from the creature at the dinner table in her apartment. And then the light goes as though it's a theater production. This is the sort of thing we expect from theater, not film. The whole room goes dark. And there's a key light that just spotlight down on her. And she rasps out her lines. And it's, it's very jarring. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, what's happening here? What's going on? And then she started to speak and I was like, but I knew because of the way that the scene was being handled with the fade to black and then the the spotlight that what I was seeing here was was in some way, some form of abstract film. And so in as much as we're not looking at any experimental films, this is certainly a moment where Del Toro is borrowing from the toolbox of experimental film to express how much Eliza loves the creature. And it goes to black and white at this point. So we lose our color palette. It goes to black and white. And then we get this shift where she stands up and she begins to lip sync to the music. To sing effectively. And then not only to sing against a star field, but then to dance. And the camera moves up on a crane away from Eliza. She's still dressed in normal clothing at that point. But then when the camera sees her again, she's got this beautiful white dress. And she's still singing as she dances around with the creature after the dance routine is over it comes back to her sitting at the table she finishes the song and the movie returns to the reality where eliza is mute she cannot speak she must sign and it's just an absolutely powerful powerful sequence and it's a moment where we get the concept of non-narrative patterns demonstrated for us where a non-narrative pattern can convey a character's state of mind it can, can convey a character's state of mind one of the other non-narrative patterns of the movie is time conveying a character's state of mind creating relationships not only between characters but scenes communicating narrative meaning and shot patterns sound motifs repetition of a familiar eventual what image is repeated over and over again clocks she's got that egg timer for in the mornings when she's 
masturbating in the in the tub we've got the clocks on the walls we've got her punching the clock at work in this repetition of this wonderfully funny uh, interaction between octavia spencer as zelda telling this co-worker to shut up because she always allows eliza to butt in line and punch her her time card but we've got this repetition of time that is then reinforced later by other aspects of the film and i don't want to say what all of those are because i'd like to save some of them for you to discover what are some of the other motifs and patterns that we see that it communicate this passage of time how does the movie continue to do this in a visual way finally i want to wrap up with a little bit of cultural analysis i want to look at this movie through the lens that i looked at karen ellen's portrayal of marion back in raiders of the lost ark because i don't want us to get the impression that formal analysis is the only way that we can analyze a movie no absolutely not Cultural analysis is really important, but as I've said before, I think our cultural analysis should be informed by our formal analysis, because if all we do is cultural analysis, it may be us simply coming to the movie and reading our own ideological map onto this particular representation of of experience and life. And it's not terrible for that to happen, but it's just, it's misguided. And, and so people will go and they'll watch a movie that is about one thing and then there's one scene that tweaks them in some fashion and they go, oh, hey, wait a second, that movie was terrible because cultural analysis, it wasn't, you know, woke enough for me or something like that. But again, we're, what we're doing here is analyzing movies more as cultural artifacts than as traditional works of art. Social conditions and attitudes are what we're looking for here. And when we, if we were to compare Creature from the Black Lagoon with The Shape of Water, we would see a huge shift in cultural values because in in that original in creature from the black lagoon the creature is a monster that the hero the good-looking 1950s 60s hero needs to rescue the beautiful girl from and we get so many revisionings of these characters in this film the creature is beautiful and the creature is kind and the put together robust 1950s 60s masculine guy is the villain he's the bad guy and so looking at this film through the lens of culture is so rich and i i felt like i would have been doing a disservice to the movie if i hadn't mentioned it here even though this isn't so much about genre uh, it's it's about maybe it is about genre ultimately because this kind of film wouldn't normally tackle some of the stuff that this movie does tackling um, the issues of ableism and representation of people who are not as able as others, that, that Eliza is unable to speak, that in the language of many years ago that we would have said that someone like her was handicapped. And I love how strong she is in this movie. I love how capable she is. She has so much agency. She doesn't come across as weak and defenseless. I mean, there are moments when when we, we worry for her, but it doesn't take away her agency and it doesn't take away that perception of her as the protagonist, as absolutely the hero of this film. But I love the scene when she is arguing with Giles about him helping her with her heist to free the creature. And she says, you're not hearing me. I I tear up every time that comes on screen. You're not hearing me as she signs at him. Well, I'm, of course I'm not hearing you. You're not saying anything, says someone. But you're not hearing me. You're not getting what I'm communicating. And she she goes into this this speech about, you know, he doesn't see what I lack. And there's just so much beauty in that scene where she reveals, you know, her heart in this in this really 
gorgeously crushing way but it's it's a great representation of a character and we, we talk a lot about representation these days that we don't have enough characters who aren't perfectly able it's one of the things i really do like about even though the movie is absolutely b-movie crap i liked that there was a representation of a character who wasn't as perfectly able as dwayne johnson is in almost every one of his movies in skyscraper because he has a prosthetic limb i thought that was really cool you know, when we, we've got those representations and people who are represented by that, whose territory is, is echoed by that map, can look at the screen and go, yeah, 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 me too, me too. And, and Giles as well, you know, this person that she, her, her, her best friend, her best friend is gay and he's gay at a time when he couldn't be out about it. And we're, we're heartbroken for him when he goes to the guy at the pie place and, and it doesn't work out for him. That's, that's crushing for us. We, we're, we, we love Giles. He's a wonderful character. Uh, Richard Jenkins' performance is, is grand and great. We lo- I love the friendship between Eliza and Giles. That They're both these outsiders. They don't belong. She can't, she can't speak and he can't speak what he really is. He can't, he can't express that to the world. What I also think is really cool is that Though she has no voice, it is a gay man who gives voice to what she says. Like in the scene where we don't get any subtitles, um, but he just he just says what she's saying as she's signing. I think that's so so powerful, uh, especially when we consider that Zelda is her other voice. So we have these these people who are marginalized being the voice of the protagonist, effectively. That Giles, a gay man, is the voice of this heterosexual, but ultimately, as I'm going to argue in just a second, queer character through Eliza. Um, and then a black woman is the voice of this white woman. I think those are really, really cool moves. Um, I don't think necessarily that that was Del Toro's intention. I think he set out to tell a story about a creature and this woman who falls in love with him. But I, I, I can't help but know that like at some level he had to be thinking like we're going to bring in all sorts of oddballs is probably the way he wanted to approach this people who have been marginalized who are seen as odd by mainstream society especially when we compare and contrast that with michael shannon as strickland he is normal he is cis hetero right he's everything that a man should be in this sense of hyper masculinity and yet he's the broken one he's the villain again Fiction can't prove anything about reality, but we may find things that we resonate with strongly. And it's important to note, film over time is not only an artifact of culture, but is a shaper of culture. So movies like The Shape of Water may begin to help society look in more progressive ways at marginalized figures like Eliza, like Giles, and like Zelda. At the end of the movie, when we've got Eliza finally with her true love. I can't, you know, I look, I look at this movie and I go, I absolutely love it. I think it's beautiful. But I know that there's lots of people who are uncomfortable with it because she has sex with a fish man. And that feels a little too weird, a little too strange, a bit too peculiar. Those are all synonyms for the word queer. And so I think this is a very queer movie in many ways. It is not necessarily queer in a LGBTQ sense. But it is definitely queer in that we have sexual and gender gender minorities uh, in this film. And that Eliza is ultimately one of them. Because what she does is considered strange and odd and peculiar by viewers today. It's considered that way by the, by the characters in the film. Strickland, we find that monstrous. Finds it horrifying. 
He's what's normal. She should want to have sex with him. He expects it so much that when he approaches her, it's just this, like, you know, I would really like a woman who can't talk. Because he puts his, you know, when he puts his hand over his wife's face when they're having sex, it's just, it's monstrous. Right? So Strickland, who is normal and who represented the, who represents in this film the way that most society would see the relationship of Eliza and the creature, sees what they do as queer, as strange, as aberrant, and yet the movie positions it as beautiful. And no matter what our ideological position is on this, we should be able, through formal critique, formal analysis, to form our own understanding of its cultural significance, even if we don't agree with it. We ought to be able to say, okay, through formal analysis, I can see that this film is presenting this relationship not as peculiar or strange, but as beautiful and not a creature as not human, but as human, as more human, ultimately, than the villain, who is, for all appearances, perfectly human. So, that's The Shape of Water and a discussion of genre and types of movies. Next week, we diverge once again from the realm of speculative fiction. So while, uh, you know, the podcast is about the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play, we're mostly, we're, we're going to stick with watch for quite a while because I'm just going to keep giving you these lectures and I hope you're enjoying them. But Black Klansman deviates from that. It is not speculative fiction again. But it is, just as it was with Little Women, it's an absolutely fabulous film. And I hope that you will join me for a discussion of Black Klansmen next week. <laughs>